Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from among us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the reading of God's holy word. And thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Well, good morning, Chelton. Uh, well, I learned in seminary that this is not how I should open my sermon, by apologizing. But I am about to. Why am I about to apologize? What an exciting worship service we had. We worshiped him, and next Sunday, we are going to a baptism. What an incredible opportunity, a great occasion. Yet, the text that I'm about to preach this morning will get pretty dark very soon. So if this is your first time visiting with us, don't judge us. We are not always this Debbie Downer. But actually, this is a great benefit of walking through the text together that God's word is here for us to deal with. And his word is 1 John 2, 18 and 27 that we just read today. Uh, may the Lord bless our time together. Let me just review where we have been thus far that 1 John series has taken us. If you remember very first chapter of the book of John, John lays out the very foundational message about who we are in Christ. First and foremost, our eternal God has become the incarnate Son of God. Jesus came to dwell among men. And all of us who believe in him, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just enough to forgive us. In other words, our salvation has been initiated by him. Our salvation has been completed by him. Salvation belongs to our God and God alone. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done. John lays the foundation first and foremost. And in chapter 2, we studied the last couple of weeks. In that chapter, now that God has loved us so much that he has given his son to us, how are we believers supposed to respond to this glorious message? John exhort us, love God by obeying his command. And what is the very command? To love him and to love others, not the world. 
we often flip the, wor- flip the order that we love the world, the lust of our eyes that we looked at last week. We love the world instead of loving God and loving others. Yet John is exhorting us, hey, love God, love others. That's what we are called to do as believers. And that brings us to where we are today. In today's section, John's going to warn us, hey, church, there will be a lot of false teachers who will just try to lure you away from this glorious truth. So John will exhort us, remain in the truth. Hold fast what you believe. You know better. May the Lord bless our time together. So two things that we will learn in today's text. First, know the characteristics of the counterfeits, which John calls them as antichrist. Know the characteristics of counterfeits, And also, John will exhort us for the true believers. So characteristics of the counterfeit, antichrist, and the exhortation for the true believers. If I put it easy way, know who they are and know who you are. That's where John will going to teach us today. So that being said, let's study what this text is all about. First, the characteristics of counterfeits, the antichrist. Read verse 18 with me. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. Here John begins this section by saying that this is the last hour. Now this expression is unique in the book of 1 John here only, not used elsewhere. But the same meaning has been used in very different form, like, There has been used, we are in the last times. And Peter says that the Pentecost, we are at the last days. When we hear this kind of expression, what do we think? Yeah, right, you've gotten that wrong for 2,000 years at least. Jesus has come and died and rose again. Since then, you've called this that we are in the last days and last hours. And look where we are 2,000 years later. We are still here. You've seriously gotten that wrong. Is that right? No. Church, God's timing and our timing are often very different. God is not bound by Eastern Standard Time. His time zone and our time zones are different. And God's sense of timing will often very confound our sense of timing. And that is sometimes deeply troubling. For some of us, say, God, hurry up. It has been way too much. This pandemic that we are walking through, this despair and depression that we are walking through, Lord, come soon. I cannot take this anymore. For some of you, know that your days are numbered. God, lengthen my days. I am not ready. Regardless wherever you are at, often his sense of timing will confound our sense of timing. Yet, do you still take the heart in him? Do you still trust that God is good? I pray that that's the testimony of our hearts today as we dive in this section. And when John says that we are in the last hour, no, he has not gotten that wrong. He's trying to alert us. We are in the last hour. Have that urgency. Christ can come any moment. Have that imminency. Yet, if we are truly honest with ourselves, church, we often operate as if we are immortal. We operate as if our days are forever and evermore. If we truly believe that Christ can come tomorrow, The things that we care about, we don't care as much. You heard the message last week. God has called us to love him and love others. 
But we often love the world because this is all we see often. So church, do you have this urgency and imminency of Christ's return in your heart? Or do you operate as if you are immortal? That, oh yeah, this is all there is. I have forever more days to live. Many of you know Pastor Tim Keller. Um, he's the founding pastor of Redeemer Press up in New York City. And he's been recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about that cancer, it's one of the most lethal ones. Um, recently, about a couple months ago, I saw his interview. And an interviewer was asking him, hey, how are you coping with your cancer diagnosis? This is a pretty difficult one. How are you dealing with it? And this is what he said that really spoke to my heart. Listen to what Keller says. Our greatest fear is that if I get a really good diagnosis, really good response to the cancer, and I really do well, and I really am able to live for a number of years, we never want to go back spiritually where we were before the cancer diagnosis. We never want to go back to that because in spite of all things that I've already preached, and I was not a hypocrite exactly, but the reality is that most of us say we need to depend on God, but we actually think we've got it sorted. We feel like we've got everything under control because we've thought this out. We know technically that we are mortal. We know technically that God is in charge of everything, but we actually and experientially don't believe it until life gets beyond our ability to control it. And when that happens to you, you turn to God and say, he really is there and he is enough. Do you believe that church, that Christ can come any days, whether by his second coming, whether by our death? He is coming. And do you realize our days are numbered in him? He said he's been crying every day with his wife. Yet he realized that, oh, wow, in this short time we have, we are in the last hour. May all of us fix our eyes on Jesus, what he has called us to do in this earth. Now, how do we know? How does John know that we are in the last hour? John calls that we are in the last hour. How does he know? Read verse 18. He says, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, Many antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. Now, here John has opened up a huge can of worm by using the big word, antichrist. Throughout the history, many people are trying to speculate who this person has been. But John has begun a chain of identification of antichrist that would have enormous repercussion throughout the history. Like one century later, one of the historian Tertullian thought any of his adversaries are all antichrist. And a few centuries later, reformers thought actually the Pope is the antichrist. And just a few centuries ago from where we are, during the World War time, people that Adolf Hitler is the antichrist. And nowadays what I hear, I hear that North Korea is the antichrist. When we hear the text like this, whoa, Antichrist, the last hour, where does our mind drift to? Eschaton, the end time, how everything's not revealed. By all means, yes, there will be the Antichrist who will oppose, Satan who will oppose the Christ's reign on this earth. That is to come. 
Yet, that being said, let me wheel us back. Actually, that is not the primary concern for Apostle John here. What is his primary concern? While he's using that, you heard that the Antichrist coming, now there are many Antichrists are here among us. He used that the singular Antichrist versus there are many Antichrists now among us, in us, right now in our church. He used that plural form. Who are these many antichrists that John is primarily concerned about? Who is John calling these people as antichrist? Let me review us where we have been. If you remember, when we began our sermon series, I kind of laid out the background of 1 John. John is writing this book to the church of Ephesus. And that church of Ephesus was plagued by false teacher. These false teachers were actually hyper-legalist. They had a really good intention if you think about it. These are the people thought spiritual things are great. Spiritual things are good. That's what we should care about. But they said it at the expense of, well, physical things aren't that good. Actually, that's pretty bad. Those spiritual beings, spiritual things are great. Physical things are bad. The chain of a slippery slope led them to believe, well, because all physical things are bad, Jesus really wasn't God actually. Jesus could not have possibly taken the form of physical form. That little slippery slope, the hyper-legalism led to even denying Jesus for who he is. And modern scholars call those people Gnostics. And we don't exactly know where Gnosticism came from. Some people think it's a form of Greco-Roman philosophy because these people really thought that physical things are all dirty. And some people thought this is a combination of Greco-Roman philosophy and Eastern philosophy, which believes that physical things are all illusion. Those two combine, it's a perfect storm. Spiritual things are good, physical things are bad, and Jesus isn't son of God because he, how could he take the form of flesh possibly? So John is calling these Gnostics false teachers and antichrists in this text. And John does not have quite nice words for them. Let's read what John says about them in 19 and 22 to 23. Let me read 19 to us first. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Jump down to verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now, this is rather a surprise for John to say that. If you read a lot of Pauline letters, he's very direct, didactic, logical, say it as it is. Unlike Paul, John's a pretty gentle apostle, but he's calling, you are a liar. What are you doing? He has very harsh word for the Gnostics. And let me bring that to the current modern Western culture. Maybe there are some of you who are out there right now watching live stream who are sitting here with us still considering Christ for who he is. And you read this verse and you are saying, I knew it, Christianity, you narrow-minded bigot. Look at you. How could you say that? You call me liar just because I don't believe in God? How dare you? I knew that Christianity is just so narrow-minded. That exclusive claim that you guys are making sickens me. Anybody, all good people go to heaven. Why does Jesus only way to God? That's just not right. You might, you might take great offense at what John is trying to say here. 
And you have every right to do that if what John is saying is not true. What Jesus claims about himself is not true, then yes, you can say that. But if what Jesus claims in John 14, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. If he really is who he claims to be, if he really died on the cross and rose from the dead, and that exclusive claim is the truth, do you realize that all people go to heaven, all religion go to heaven? That is also an exclusive claim in the name of inclusion as well. I don't think I can articulate this any better than C.S. Lewis, how he gave a talk at BBC Radio, which was later published in The Mere Christianity. He called it the Lewis trilemma. He says that some people think Jesus is just a more good moral teacher, but you really cannot take him that way. If he's just a teacher, then he must be a lunatic. Let me just read what Lewis says. It's a lengthy quote, but listen to what Lewis says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, which means evil. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Lewis, trained atheist, says that Jesus is, you cannot just say Jesus is a nice human who points to God. No, Jesus has to be God. And if he really is God, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, what Jesus claims, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also is the truth that we must learn to wrestle with this claim. So church, if you're considering Jesus Christ, will you consider what Jesus Christ says? Then will you consider his claim? Yes, if Jesus is not who he claims to be, then what John is saying is extremely offensive and just very narrow-minded wrong. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, what he says is a gentle rebuke to bring us to, yes, Gnostics, you are wrong. Jesus is not just a person. Jesus is the Christ. Believe in him. Come to him. Now then, who is this Antichrist? How would you identify Antichrist in us? Church, I tell you, if there's really, John is saying the Antichrists are among them. Those who deny Christ are among them. Those who try to lure you away from believing in Jesus were among them. And I say, they are among here with us right now as well. John calls true believers not counterfeits at the end of verse 27, which he implies by saying that those false teachers are counterfeits. 
Church, antichrist, when you hear that word, yes, it means exactly as it sounds. It's against Christ. But the Greek prefix anti also has the meaning of in the place of, instead of. If the Satan wants to divide us today, lead the church apart, Satan's not going to come to the front door right now and come to the pulpit and say, Jesus is not God, by the way. Satan is God. He's not going to say that. Why? He's not going to say that. Nobody would believe him. You, we know better. Oh, Satan, you are not God. What are you trying to do? But Satan will come in a clothing of sheep, the wolf in a sheep's clothing. He will come in very deceptive, counterfeit way. How do we know? Read verse 19. What does John say in 19? They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. What does that imply? They were part of them. They acted like Christian. They talked like Christian. They were really, they went out from us. They were one of us, but they really weren't part of us because they never really remained in faith. In other words, what are the counterfeits today that act very much like Christian, godly, but in the end, they are wolf in sheep's clothing? I told you this sermon would get pretty dark today as John warns about this false teacher. So as a minister of God's word, as your pastor, let me share a few concerns that I have in church in general, even for us. First and foremost, those Gnostics, yes, they might have sincere desire, but their hyper-legalism led to this kind of wrongful claim that Jesus is not even God. And that legalism actually is among us today. The legalism is not something that is off 2,000 years ago. It is very present in our us today. How does that look like? It comes like this. Oh, I'm at church today. I am so much better than others who are watching online service. Look at me. I am attending Tuesday evening prayer meeting. I am so much better than those slackers. I haven't skipped a single day in our Bible reading project. Look at me. God must be pleased with who I am. We desperately want to earn our salvation, earn blessing. We desperately want to prove ourselves as if the single thing that we do earns God's merit, earns God's salvation. The moralism and legalism is deeply divisive. And those who not measure up to your standard of Christianity, you have a very condescending view. And that is extremely toxic in a church. Because if that's the case, then we have to come to church to smile all the time. God is so good while you're dying inside. We have to pretend that we are constantly spiritual. And that is so divisive. And often that leads to prosperity gospel as well. You work hard, therefore God will bless you. You pray. He will answer your prayer request however you prayed. And that is so toxic in a church. And that is, it grieves my heart whenever I witness that. And do you know just for you, church, not only for church, for you individually, the moralistic and legalistic belief will crush you, especially when suffering comes upon you. Let me elaborate that. Suffering itself will not destroy you, but how you respond to suffering will make it or break it. I've seen people who come out incredibly bitter, and I've seen come out incredibly better after they suffer before the Lord. You've met those who came out very bitter. I was like, how dare he do that? On the other side, some people came out like a gold. They've been through their refiner's fire and praising God despite difficulty they've been through. But when you subscribe to this legalistic, moralistic belief, do you know what happens? If you really think, oh, I'm facing suffering because I did wrong. It's all about my performance. I did wrong. God must be punishing me. I am nobody. I knew it. I deserve it. God is punishing me. I have no hope. 
it will lead you to utter all despair. But if you believe that you are facing suffering, despite you've done really good, what that will lead to, you'll be bitter. God, don't you know, I've tithed every month. I've done this. I've served you. I've read Bible. I've prayed. How dare you to do, bring this suffering? You will become incredibly resentful and bitter. And that's very counterfeit gospel. Gospel is all about what Jesus Christ has done. Now we serve out of joy, out of gratitude, not out of we must prove our existence before God. That is very toxic before the church. Let me share one more concern about the church in general that we face as a church is the political savior mentality. Deep down, some of us thought, now that the new administration has come, everything will be so much better. Oh, man, we have hope finally. On the other side, some of you guys have thought, oh, man, the last administration was the last hope for the country. Now it's all down the hill. We are all going to perish. We put all our hopes in the political realm. Church, Jesus did not come as the political savior. Jesus did not come as the militant king, the victor. He came as the weakest of the weak, and he died in weakness on the cross. Some of us say, well, you are speaking way too much about this. You are not saying anything about this. That kind of meant too much, too little. Church, what is John exhorting us in this book? We've been saying it over and over. Our lives are supposed to be marked by truth and love. That's the main exhortation for John. When there's only truth but without love, that will be soul-crushing and divisive. But when there's only love without truth, uh, that will be powerless and void. And when it comes down to this political savior mentality, oftentimes truth overwhelms love. So it becomes soul-crushing, it becomes othering to those who hold different views, and it becomes extremely divisive. Church have conviction. That's a good thing. But the church unity, unity does not mean unison. Unity does not mean uniformity. It's okay to have different views. Yet, just like unity is not singing in unison, unity is also, there's beauty in harmony. People hold, sing different notes, but there's great unity before the Lord. Uh, the mentality, counterfeit gospel of legalism and the political savior mentality can really rip the church apart in half. And we must watch out against that today where we are. Now, John has been teaching us so far, there are many things that rip the church apart, those counterfeit believers, false teachers, Gnostic. Now, he's going to exhort us, what are we supposed to do as true believers then? Know who they are, now know who we are. Read verse 20 to 21 and 24 to 27. 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Read verse 24. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, 
remain in him. Now, there are two words that are repeated throughout this section. One is anointing, right? What is this anointing all about? It's the Greek word charisma. So oftentimes when we hear this word, we think, oh, wow, it's something that we receive after we become a believer for 20 years down the road. It's some sort of special thing. Yet also, this is a word play by John. Antichrist is antichristus. And charisma, antichristus, what is the same kind of common denomination? Christus. What is Christus? Christ. And what does the Christ mean? The anointed one. So all believers who have put trusted in the anointed one, Christ, now indwelling Holy Spirit points us, points all the believers of God to that anointed one. So anointing that we received from the Holy Spirit points us to the anointed one. In other words, all who put trust in Christ have this anointing from the Holy Spirit. And what does Holy Spirit point us to? If you read verse 24 and 27, there's phrase remain in him repeated four times. Other translation puts the remain in him as abide in him. Isn't it fascinating? John has been warning us, don't be lured by those false teacher Gnostics who's trying to pull you away from truth. But John does not actually give any tactic or strategy to fight against them. But he's reminding them, verse 21, you know the truth. Verse 24, you have heard this from the beginning. Abide in him, remain in him. In other words, hold fast Jesus' death and resurrection. That's where we need to anchor your soul today. Church, what do you do to encourage yourself to abide in him today? Perhaps the greatest false teacher is what we have been talking about thus far. Sometimes we look at the outside world, we let the newspaper, media, or Facebook post interpret scripture for us rather than going backward. Sometimes the outside influence is our greatest false teacher. But also sometimes in the season that we are walking through, the greatest false teacher is your own heart. That leads to despair. That leads to depression. There's no hope in me. This is so hard. What is the greatest false teacher among you that lured you away from the truth that Jesus loved you to death? I'll tell you, I'm such a futuristic thinker, church, so I sometimes think, oh, man, everything's going to be terrible in the future too. Or sometimes I think, man, if only I get through this, everything will be great. And you know what? In this kind of false thinking, the false teacher within my soul, who's been the greatest teacher and helpful source for me to abide in him? I found myself saying this the other day to my colleague, a fellow pastor here, that, you know, really my best friend for the last year or has been so really the psalmist. The psalmist has been such a faithful companion of mine. I've been reading through the book of Psalm every month for a while, and it's been so helpful for me. Yes, I sometimes tend to think, man, everything's going to be terrible. Psalmist confronts me, Jin, yes, life may be terrible, but God will deliver you. He will come through. Do not lose heart in your hardship. Abide in him. Hope in him. Remain in him. Sometimes I think, if only I get through this, life will be so much better. Psalmist gives me a realistic view. Even if you go through this, Jin, life will still be hard. But guess what? God will still meet you at where you are in your hardship. Hope in him. Remain in him. Abide in him. Church, what is the greatest false teacher to you right now that rips you away from Christ, that causes division within yourself and within the church? Do you know where to begin? Perhaps some of you guys are just like me. Sometimes you don't know. 
God, what are you doing? I'm losing all hope. Where to begin? If you are struggling with that, look verse 24. The John gives us great hint. As for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. What have they heard from the beginning? The very message of the gospel. Jesus loved them. Loved them enough to give his life for them. Remain in the glorious truth. They have heard that Jesus loved them. Jesus died for them. Jesus conquered the death for them. And John is exhorting them, remain in the truth. Jesus bled to abide in you. And now abide in him. That is the very call that John is giving us where we are. Church, what is this false teacher that lures you away from this glorious truth? What is this false teacher, the liars, that constantly tempt you away from the glorious truth that Jesus loved you so much? John's exhortation to us is to reject that, whether it be outside influence, whether it be the inside murmur of your heart, yet hope in him. Hold fast this glorious truth. Know who you are in Christ. You are redeemed. You are worth everything for Christ to bled his blood, every ounce of it for you. You are preciously and wonderfully made in the sight of the Lord. Do not lose heart. Hold fast what Christ has preserved for you. Know this truth. Do not be lured away by false teachers. Let's pray together. God, there are many concerns within us. As John's been saying that these people, these false teachers who acted like part of them, tore the church apart. What are the things that tear the church apart nowadays, O oh Lord? I see John's heart bleeding all over in this text. God, would you keep us from those temptations? And as John exhorts us, you know better. You know the truth. Help us remain in the gospel truth. And for some of us, the very false teacher is the despair of their own heart. God, remind them about who you are. Help us intentionally and every day abide ourselves in you. Lord, we are unable apart from you coming through. Just like you first initiated the salvation for us. God, help us. We are weak. We are weary. And God, we pray that you preserve church unity forever and evermore. God's church are constantly under attack. Oh, Lord, would you humble ourselves? Would you allow us to see your goodness today? And would you allow us to hold fast on what you have called us? In your precious name we pray. Amen.